0: Which are the most important UK privacy cases of recent times? That's the question Paul and I address today on the Media Law Podcast. Welcome to the media law podcast i 'm tom bennett and i 'm joined as ever by the inimitable Paul rag. Hi Paul. Hi Tom. This is the first of two special episodes that were prompted by a question we received on Twitter a few weeks ago. Our listener Reagan Midchen asked us what we thought the most important privacy and defamation cases were in the u k in recent times it 's a great question and we 're keen to answer great questions so in this first special, Paul and I are going to focus on privacy cases, and we'll follow this up in the coming weeks with another podcast on defamation cases. We're going to split our discussion of the cases into three sections, in which each of us will present one case which we'll talk about. We'll cover the privacy cases we think are the most important, those whose significance we think is often underappreciated, and also those which are our personal favourites as teachers and scholars of the law. But first, Paul, you wanted to take a few minutes to talk about the leading High Court judges who have shaped the privacy field in English law over the last couple of decades. Uh, Yes, That pair are, of course, uh, Mr. Justice Eadie and Mr. Justice Tuggenhunt.
1: Yes, that's right. Uh, I'm slightly troubled to learn that we only have one listener. Um, I, I thought we'd at least got to double figures. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, I thought I thought really, if we're going to talk about privacy, we've got to talk about the two key judges uh, in this uh, over the past 20 years. And that's got to be... Um, Edie and Tug and Hat, who have shaped the law into into what it is uh, today, Um, they of course uh, crossed over. Um, They were hearing privacy cases and defamation cases at the same time, but largely we can sort of think of their influence as Edie having the first shot and then uh, Tug and Hat following up with the rebound, uh, as if there was this was some kind of uh, basketball game, Uh, which it wasn't. The other reason I wanted to mention, Mr. Justice Edy, and in fact both judges, is that of the cases I'm going to discuss, I'm not really going to discuss his at all. In fact, the three cases I've chosen aren't his, and it struck me that that was a travesty in itself that I was choosing cases which weren't his. Um, There are there are several contributions I think he made to the development of privacy uh, that are significant and deserve recognition, and I think that the first contribution was to Uh, meticulously analyse the facts that he was presented with uh, in a way that I think those uh, judges who preceded him uh, in uh, uh, privacy cases um, did not. They did not do uh, that. They spoke in terms of generalities. They, They used... Um, phrases and touchstones it seems to me in order to reach conclusions and that's why my uh, first case is is going to be A and B PLC because we see many of those touchstones in play uh, in a very uh, operative uh, way and determinative way. So I think uh, Mr Justice Easy deserves recognition uh, for that. I think the other thing that he did which was uh, important was was to say that the the determination of privacy law and privacy law cases can't be based upon morality. It can't be based upon our our views of the claimant and our sense of whether they have done something that is righteous uh, or something that is um, less than righteous, uh, let's say. And the importance of that morality neutrality comes through, I think, in, uh, of course, Mosley um, but prior to Mosley, the case of C, C and A, B. In many ways, C, C and A, B deserved uh, discussion as a sort of favourite uh, case because, of course, it involves uh, an adulterer um, that had, it's, it's largely a repetition of the fact pattern of A and B, which we're going to go on to talk about uh, shortly. Uh, and yet Mr Justice E. D reached essentially the opposite conclusion that the Court of Appeal had. Uh, in A and B on largely the same facts. The other thing I admire about Mr Justice Eady was that um, he made these decisions uh, without um, any uh, sign of intimidation uh, by the press. Uh, Now, uh, that, of course, um, sounds like something ridiculous to say. Of course, he has to make these decisions without any sort of sense of intimidation Uh, And yet, I think of all the judges over the past 20 years, he was exposed to some of the harshest, most despicable uh, treatment by the popular press that for any lesser man, uh, I'm sure, would have influenced uh, their outcome. If he'd wanted an easier life, of course, I suppose he wouldn't have become a judge. But if he had wanted an easier life, he could have just followed uh, the the sort of touchstones and easily found in favour of the press on several occasions. And he didn't, despite the barbaric treatment that he received. Of course, this doesn't mean that I agree with every decision that he reached. Um, But also, I think he had uh, uh, this unfair reputation as being pro-privacy and anti-press. There are several cases he decided which were not anti-press in any sense. Uh, The clearest one for me is the Elton John case, Elton John and Associated Newspapers, where he could easily... Uh, have found uh, for Elton John if he was anti-press by actually uh, taking that case to the second stage of the Campbell test and asking what it was that was in the public interest in knowing that Elton John's hair plugs uh, were failing. Yeah. He didn't. There's also of course the
0: uh, author of a blog case Yeah, um, which very much comes down on the side of the press.
1: Absolutely. And and that was going to be the the final case I, I mentioned. Author of a blog uh, in that—that's another case that I don't agree with at all. I think he got that one wrong.
0: <laughs> I agree with you, for what it's worth. Um, yes, and I think it's also worth mentioning, perhaps just briefly, uh, the 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 other judge, Mr Justice Tugendhat, who, as you rightly say, is often I think thought of instinctively, but as the the other one batting the ball back again um and perhaps i think unfairly gets painted as the more pro-speech of the two judges and the less pro-privacy actually i think pair of them are remarkably similar in their approach to the cases um and what really strikes me, I I find very striking about the approach that Mr. Justice Tugendhat takes is how scholarly it is. Yeah. He is also very attentive to detail in his judgments, but he has this broader appreciation of the context, including both the historical context and the constitutional context within which he's rendering his decisions. Yeah. Um, And this, for me, uh, it was really illuminating uh, when uh, a few years ago now, um, he and I wrote pieces for a a special issue of communications law, which uh, you were editing, of course, at the time, and you will remember it well, um, when we were talking about judicial activism. And um, so Michael Tugendhat's piece in that collection was a broad brush defence of the way that both he and Mr justice e d had approached privacy cases over the last couple of decades during precisely the period when particularly Mr. Justice E d was being subject to these uh, voracious criticisms in uh, in the tabloid press um and and uh, also you know outside of their writing by certain members of the press. Uh, speaking uh, in an outside work context. Um, and I found that very striking, and I'd, it was a piece that uh, he wrote that I very much enjoyed writing the reply to because I largely agree with this sentiments um, uh, yeah. that, that the, the activism, quote, unquote, that was demonstrated by uh, both of those judges in the High Court at the time was certainly not uncalled for. Um, yeah. Andy, I, I think, was arguably envisaged by Parliament in passing the Human Rights Act in 1998, and there's certainly a way it can be defended there, but it can be defended more broadly against uh, the common law tradition, yeah. by drawing on that common law tradition, which has always been historically one of development, of progress, driving the law forward, and that that's what Mr Justice Tugendhat was getting at there, and it's something that, having read that piece, going back and reading again some of his judgments from the Mm mid-2000s onwards, you can see that historical context informing his decision-making, maybe not always explicitly, but once Mm -hmm. you understand that it's there, I think it sheds a really uh, interesting light on those judgments. Yeah. Right, let's, uh, let's delve into this then, shall we, with our categories of cases. And the first category that we've chosen to talk about is the most important the most significant privacy case now you and i have different ideas as to which the most important or significant uk privacy case of recent times is um, yeah. but yeah you go first Paul
1: okay so the the case as i've i've already spoiled the surprise by telling you the case that i'm going to talk about uh, and so the the, uh, the the case that i have uh, would like to talk about is a and b plc uh, which was decided by the court of appeal uh In um, 2002, uh, it was handed down on the the 11th of March. Uh, Now, uh, the reason why I think this is the most significant case, uh, the reason why I want to draw attention to it is because the damn thing is still there. It's still floating around. It's still influencing judicial decision making. In fact, uh, it even cropped up recently, uh, in what I think is uh, one of the most disappointing judges of recent uh, disappointing judgments of recent times, and that is the case of YXB and TNO. Um, it is a case that I want to see uh, overturned. I want it repudiated. I want it wiped from the pages of history. It is the most ghastly treatment of privacy uh, that is. Possibly imaginable. It is the most uh, obnoxious treatment of press freedom that is imaginable. It deserves no place in our jurisprudence, and I don't want to see any other judge ever refer to it again in positive terms. Okay,
0: then. So, reminders for listeners who may not
1: know the case what? what happened in it, and why is it so awful? Okay. Although the case itself is set out in a very anodyne way, everything's labelled with um, letters, um, the facts are these. The uh, Mirror uh, got hold of a story uh, about an obscure footballer, a chap called Gary Flitcroft, who at that time was captain of Blackburn Rovers, a sort of mid level Premier League team uh, in the early noughties, who five years earlier had uh, achieved a degree of notoriety by winning the the uh, Premier League. Uh, but since then, they, they've they done pretty much nothing. Uh, it turned out Gary Flitcroft, a married man uh, with children, uh, was having an affair with uh, not one but two uh, people. Uh, and this, uh, something of a logistical uh, nightmare, I'm sure, uh, intrigued, uh, the Mirror, and they wished uh, to set the set the record straight. They wished the world to know that this man uh, was an adulterer. Now, what's intriguing about this about this moral uh, battle that the Mirror uh, wished to fight uh, for the right to uh, name Gary Flitcroft as this footballer uh, was uh, this when they eventually were able to name Gary Foot. Uh, Flitcroft as the footballer at the centre of this scandal, they did so by means of an apology. Okay, so the short history, the short litigation history is this. Uh, Gary Flitcroft gets wind uh, of this story. It's about to appear in the newspapers. He instructs his lawyers, they issue an injunction, prevents the Mirror from naming him. The Mirror go ahead anyway, and and have their, their story about this unnamed Premier League footballer, which, you know, blah, 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 isn't it awful? We can't tell you who this this rat, is, the love rat is, blah, blah, blah. When they can name him, they apologise. The, ty- the front page uh, of the um, Mirror in 2002 says, it's Gary Flipcroft. We're sorry. We know you've never heard of him. We certainly didn't want to have to write about him, but there you go. So there was no moral c- crusade because this person was so obscure that they even had to explain who he was. Nevertheless, uh, the judge in this case, uh, this was a Court of Appeal decision, uh, the uh, judges on the panel are Lord Wolfe, uh, Lord Justice uh, Laws and Lord Justice Dyson. Lord Wolfe gives the uh, judgment. And he essentially makes a complete mockery of the idea of privacy by saying that uh, a private life is one that belongs wholly or mainly, to a good family man. And that since uh, this individual, this Gary Philip Croft, is not a good family man, he's not deserving of uh, privacy, private life, um, and uh, the confidentiality uh, that is owed in a relationship is less for uh, the sort of intransient relationships that he had. Uh, And in any event, as a footballer, he's a role model to millions. He's not. Uh, His behaviour could be emulated by small children. He couldn't. They're not even allowed in strip clubs. And therefore, it's important that the world knows uh, about his wrongdoing. And that sense of press freedom is looming large in this case. And of course, he couldn't have his injunction of course the mirror should be able to name them the whole thing is absolutely ridiculous
0: i remember when i first uh, encountered this case as a uh, a law student in the mid 2000s um thinking that there you was know, something very odd about the reasoning in it particularly on that role model point the idea that um, because Gary Flitcroft is a role model assuming, argue, I know that he is, and I agree with you, I don't think he was at all, but he is, that um, publicity should be given to his activities because children might emulate them. Um, Surely if the activities are bad and you don't want children to emulate them, the way to solve that is don't give them publicity. So that, to me, straightforwardly, logically, is an argument against giving these activities publicity, not in favour of giving them publicity, yeah, um, it, it was mad.
1: Yeah, and 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 in fact, that was the point that uh, that Gavin made, Gavin Phillipson. Yeah, uh, made that in his EHRLR, e, e, hang on. EHR, yeah EHRLR article. That's the European Human Rights Law Review for yeah. those not familiar uh, with the acronym. Yeah, that uh, that appeared sh- uh, shortly afterwards, in which he he made more or less a, that, that point. Um, Yes, I remember discussing the case as a master's student with with Gavin.
0: And Gavin was uh, teaching the master's course that I studied. And I remember we we were discussing that very point. I'm pretty sure the piece that he wrote was required reading. Yeah, I got it somewhere.
1: Yeah. Um. Yes. So uh, now that case should have been consigned to the bin. Uh, certainly in the aftermath of uh, Campbell, which was uh, superior in terms of its treatment of the issues and its understanding of the principles, Uh, but especially after uh, cases like McKenna and Ash uh, and also um, Max Mosley's case. Instead, it has something of a um, re-emergence in the uh, sort of aftermath of the the sort of Ryan Giggs uh, sort of spate of cases that happened, not not in CTB itself, which is the Ryan Giggs case, um, but in uh, Ferdinand, Ferd- uh, Rhea Ferdinand's case, uh, in uh, Hutchinson's uh, case, which is Gordon, Gordon Ramsay's father-in-law, the Steve McLaren case, uh, and uh, as I've said, uh, the YXB case, all contain and emulate uh, the reasoning uh, that we saw Lord Wolf apply Alright
0: So yeah I think you make a good case there about the significance of A and B and I'm wholly with you this calling decision should be consigned to the dustbin Um, But I take a different view of the most important privacy case and um, for me it is the case of Wainwright and the Home Office. Now, Wainwright and the Home Office is a case that's not actually to do with publication of information at all. Um, it's a case that really is to do with physical intrusion into a person's private space and to their person. Um, so the facts which took place in the mid-1990s, are these um, two individuals, uh, a mother and uh, uh, her son, um, who had some learning difficulties, the son had some learning difficulties, Uh, went to visit a relative in prison near Leeds. Uh, Upon arrival at the prison, which had been experiencing um, some problems with uh, drugs being smuggled into the prison, uh, the pair of uh, individuals were strip searched, but they were strip searched in a way that broke the prison's own rules on strip searches. In particular, there were rules specifying that anyone being strip searched should be uh, searched only by uh, officers of the same sex that they should be uh, required only to undress one half of their body at any one time, that is, top or bottom, rather than left or right, and that um, any curtains in the room in which the search is being conducted should be uh, closed. Um, The Wayne Wrights were required to uh, remove all of their clothes uh, at once, and there were uh, windows that were left uncurtained whilst this was going on so the rules were broken. Um, There was also a battery inflicted on the son when he was uh, touched uh, by one of the uh, officers conducting the search. Now the uh, claimants here brought a claim on a number of grounds including the battery Um, but one of the grounds they brought the claim on initially in the county court was invasion of privacy just broadly cast this is an invasion of our privacy That never been meted out by a state institution um, if the case had been brought a few years later the human rights act would have been in play because a public body would have been breaching article 8 but this preceded the human rights act so a cause of action would only lie if there was one at common law now in the county court The claimants succeeded. But the case got appealed eventually all the way up to the House of Lords, where the claim for invasion of privacy was dismissed. There's only one judgment given in the House of Lords, it's the judgment of Lord Hoffman. And I think it is the most significant judgment in the history of English privacy law. The reason I think that is that it sets the direction of travel for the way in which privacy law has developed since. And that direction of travel is a very narrow one. Lord Hoffman in the judgment rules out the creation of a broad tort of invasion of privacy and restricts the development of uh, privacy protections to a narrow category of informational privacy which had already been recognized, sort of, through the Equitable Doctrine of Confidence and the way that it had been deployed in uh, the previous two or three decades by reasonably creative counsel to provide a measure of protection against the publication of private information. Um, Now, that is, for me, is a fork in the road moment. It's a sliding doors moment. When English privacy law could have said, you know what, we've got the Human Rights Act that's just come into force, that is giving privacy a greater degree of prominence in the public consciousness and as a matter of law, and as a nation we should be moving towards greater privacy protections, we should be identifying different types of privacy violation that can be harmful and finding ways to guard against them, and thus to Justify the recognition of either a broader tort of privacy that would encompass different types of privacy invading activity, not just the publication of private facts, but also intruding physically upon a person or their private space or their affairs, um, something that the Americans call the tort of intrusion. um, Or, of course, the recognition of discrete torts like you have in the United States dealing with different types of privacy violation. But both of those options are laid waste by Lord Hoffman's sweeping judgment that simply goes, and I'm paraphrasing here, there ain't no tort of privacy. And largely repeating the line that we'd seen in Kay and Robertson in 1991, when the Court of Appeal there had said, there ain't no tort of privacy. Again, I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I've written on this case oh two or three times wainwright uh, because i keep coming back to it i keep thinking this was the moment when the court found themselves restricted and just as an example i think of how restrictive this case is and the way that it played on the minds of the judges uh, and of later judges um barely six months after you have wainwright comes the campbell decision same court uh, in the House of Lords. Lord Hoffman is back in that case. He's uh, on, the, on the bench. And alongside him is a brand new, just been appointed judge to the House of Lords, Baroness Hale, the first mm. female judge and later president of the Supreme Court on our highest court. And she looks in the Campbell case, authority as to how the court should rule. Should the court be recognising a new tort of privacy? And she looks at Wainwright. And then, presumably, she looks across the table at Lord Hoffman, who's just written this vastly experienced, vastly senior judge, and she says, and again, I'm paraphrasing, as Lord Hoffman has said before, the law cannot create a new cause of action to protect the claimant, even if it wanted to, in a case like Wainwright. And thus, nor can it do so in Campbell, and we are restricted to going down this route of extending, quote unquote, the law of confidentiality. Now, what happened to the law of confidentiality? Well, depending on which scholar or judge you read, it's been extended, it's been uh, developed, uh, it's been elaborated, it's, it's, it's been all manner of uh, vague verbs, but None of it answers some fundamental questions about what has happened to that doctrine. If it's been extended, does that mean that the original breach of confidence doctrine is no longer there in its original form or that it is and it's developed in parallel? Does it mean that misuse of private information is equitable rather than tortious? Because if it's an extension of confidence, logically it should be equitable. It creates a formal nightmare for trying to work out what's going on. I didn't have to. And the reason that it did can all be traced back to this decision in Wainwright. So much as you would consign A and B to the dustbin, uh, I would be much, much happier if we didn't have Wainwright. But the fact of the matter is that we do. It still exerts today uh, a considerable amount of influence on judges. Um, And if you look back through the privacy cases since Scamble, you see reference to Wainwright cropping up time and time and time again, even though it's not a publication case, as judges name check it and they say, oh, and this is why we can't have a broader tort to of privacy. It's still exerting that influence. I think the most recent reference to it was sometime in the mid-20 teens, um, mm. which is you know, 15 years after this case that had nothing to do with the publication of private facts mm. uh, was heard. And um, it, it still exerts an influence on. Private facts cases today.
1: Yeah. Yes, good one. Yeah, I. Um, I mean, I still think A and B is the most significant, but yeah, I will accept uh, Wainwright as a, a joint runner-up.
0: Interesting that neither of us picked Campbell, since that is the case that gets mentioned by the books as mm. the pivotal moment in uh, English privacy law when misuse of private information in motion. Why do you think we didn't pick that? Uh,
1: I, I suppose there's a sort of sense now uh, that it's become a bit hackneyed to uh, to speak of Campbell. Um, I notice even even judges themselves um, will now sometimes refer to, I don't know, PJS as the, the source of the misuse of private information yeah. or principles, um, which... In my mind it isn't i mean campbell is the is still the 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 one that uh, contains it's still the touchstone um i think also the reason i don't- t- didn't talk about campbell was uh, I still have a disappointment uh, with it that uh, that I'm not ready to uh, admit to or or even talk about necessarily um and the disappointment is that whilst the judges talk um at length about the importance of balancing they don't actually explain what they mean by that, or in fact how a court is to do it. They don't give uh, a sort of an authoritative uh, toolkit to uh, lesser courts to enable them to conduct this delicate balancing exercise. And of course, that is the reason why I think we see um, the rather shoddy treatment of the balancing exercise in subsequent cases. And of course... In my own writing, as far as I'm concerned, the House of Lords in um, Campbell didn't conduct a balancing exercise. What it did was split the case into discrete items of information and then just run a checklist against it. Yeah. To essentially say is this private or not? Yep. Or nope. Is there a public interest in it? Yep. Nope. If there is a public interest then it loses. If there isn't, it wins. Yeah, I agree. So that. That's not a balancing exercise. That's not careful waiting, uh, and um, yes, those are the reasons why I didn't I didn't talk about Campbell. But but what I did want to talk about my second case uh, was AA and Associated Newspapers because I think it demonstrates clearly this problem with this um, this rather amorphous uh, balancing test that's uh, sort of obfuscated. So, this. What's our was, second category?
0: Uh, so, our second category is cases the significance of which often goes underappreciated. Well, yeah. Significant cases, but ones that don't get talked about as if they were particularly significant. A kind of unsung yeah. hero or perhaps unspotted villain, depending on your view of the case.
1: Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm. Um... I'm ready for my close-up now. All right. Well, you say it's 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 what for you? A
0: and Associated Newspapers.
1: Yeah, A. So this is a, this is a case about um, a tra- so AAA in this case is a child, an infant, um, a, a babe in arms, and uh, the case is brought by her litigation friend uh, BVB, uh, who is her mother. Now the um. Uh, The the child in question is said to be the child of a prominent politician. Uh, I'm not going to name the politician.
0: But if you uh, are interested, listener, as the Court of Appeal helpfully noted in the case, whilst this individual is not named, if you want to read about the details surrounding the affair, uh, the Court of Appeal tells us that you can read about them in a book called Just Boris by
1: Sonia Furnell. Yes. So it, it could be this. Listen, this could be any politician, any politician at all, uh, with crow like hair, um, who's just stumbled out of a pub. Um, it could be anyone, but uh, the thing that I'm interested in the most is the way that I'm interested in the fat pattern itself. And I, I want to try and sort of summarize the, the fat pattern, but I encourage the listener, our solitary listener to uh, read uh, the the case and look at the fact pattern carefully uh, in the High Court decision. But if I can just paraphrase uh, the elements of the case, we are told that the claimant complains about essentially three things. First, the intrusive nature of the news gathering process. She is subjected to what can only be described as a siege. Uh, she is trapped in her home. Uh, I mean, the, the the circumstances that are described in the in the high court judgment, which is presumably the watered down version, are actually terrifying. Uh, the way that the journalists, uh, like a, a pack of rabid animals, attacks her in the car, pesters um, her all through the night. Uh, shouting at windows, throwing things. It's just abhorrent. Um, well, that gets mentioned in the High Court and then we never hear of it again. Has no bearing at all on the on the outcome of the case, as far as I can tell. Uh, the second thing she complains about is the photographs uh, being taken of the child and the, 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 the publication of those. And the third thing is the story itself. What on earth is a newspaper doing publishing this story? It's a non-story um the way that the court uh, treats these issues um is very careful it's a long uh, judgment but uh, to my mind demonstrates all the problems that exist within this idea of a balancing exercise for the reason that we see some very fine and careful analysis of the strength of the privacy claim we see uh, the high court uh take into account certain factors but also discount uh, elements of the privacy claim as well and one of the most prominent discounts applied to the strength of the privacy claim is the idea that the mother would actually share uh, information about the identity uh, of the the claimant's uh, parentage with people at parties um, this was something the court felt had to be taken into account in order to lessen the entitlement to uh, privacy. So we have all of this very careful reasoning. And then when we move over to the other side and we think about, well, what is the public interest in this story? Uh, we move from um, very careful factual analysis to a spate of generality. This person is a politician. Politicians have to accept that in the life they lead, they're subject to a higher level of uh, conduct. Uh, The moral expectations of them are high uh, and therefore there is a public interest in uh, denouncing adultery or whatever, Um, having children out of wedlock. I don't know. And so we see on the one hand, this uh, rather sceptical treatment of privacy in this case, um, juxtaposed with a very generous uh, approach to um, public interest that essentially says I'm not an editor. This isn't really a matter for me. This is really a matter for readers. And given that there's public interest here, I have to step back and can't do a whole lot, lot about it. Well, fine. It, you know, high court judges make decisions and we sometimes agree, and we sometimes disagree. The case then goes to the court of appeal. In fact, it's a cross appeal. At first instance, the judge had decided that the photographs couldn't be published, but the story could. Of course, the newspaper objected to the fact they couldn't publish the photos. Um. And the uh, the um, uh, claimant uh, objected to the to the story itself. I think if I remember correctly, the objection to the photographs wasn't pursued at the Court of Appeal level. I think that got dropped or wasn't really talked about, I think. Um, nevertheless, the point is that here is the Court of Appeal's opportunity to say, mm, Look, we have some problems here with the uh, the way that this balancing exercise is conducted. Without any criticism of the trial judge, here we see very clearly that we really need to chuck in some analytical tools to assist the judge to make these kind of fine, uh, this finely tuned and sensitive fact sensitive assessment of the public interest. Uh, the second stage in the balancing exercise because without that finely tuned analytical toolkit the judge has no choice really once she has identified public interest of course she does reach the right conclusion that she needs to step away what she needed was the the language to be able to distinguish between types of public interest or otherwise to be able to say what counts as a strong public interest claim as against a medium or a low public interest claim? How is she to do this without appearing to be either arbitrary um, or drawing upon her own moral viewpoints, as we also see in some privacy cases where judges say, well, this is a kiss-and-tell story, so there's no public interest in it. Hmm. Now, what has plagued the misuse of private information tort, I think, has been the inability of judges uh, to reach these decisions in an objective way, without having to fall back on these more subjective, uh, intuitive, pre-legal uh, intuitions about um, the the worth of a particular story to society at large, it forces them to make uh, judgments that really they're, they're not it, neither entitled to do or capable of doing. But how on earth can a judge say whether a story has value in a democratic society or not? What kind of stories do have value? We have this distinction between what interests the public and what's in the public interest, which is utterly meaningless. Um, but judges can't say what's important. We know what's important to the great British public. It's it's sex and scandal Nothing to do with finally composed policy or anything like that. Actually,
0: I mean, if you see um, re- what recently has been going on in our politics, I think it's entirely arguable that the British public doesn't give two hoots about sex and scandal. <laughs> Depends who's conducting uh, them. I mean, and given this particular well, case, um, uh, it's rather prescient.
1: Actually- Listen, I'm slightly cynical about that. I think uh, the um, British public is very good at doing what uh, newspapers tell them to do. Uh, They're very obedient, and if they're told by newspapers this isn't really a big deal, then they accept it as not being a very big deal. But there you go. So, um, yes, so this is why I think AAA is um, uh, an underrated case for two reasons. One, it was an opportunity for the Court of Appeal uh, to. Uh, deal with the absence of a clear analytical toolkit for judges in determining the strength of a public interest claim and the appropriate weight in uh, the balance uh, but also it was a missed opportunity for the court of appeal to say something about intrusive news gathering practices which were also high on the list of the, the claimants complaints uh, they didn't really get taken into account i don't think it, first instance. Of course, the Court of Appeal can only react to what it's instructed to do or or the pleadings in front of it, and perhaps the parties didn't plead uh, on this point. Uh, But nevertheless, here we see the ghost of Wainwright uh, playing out indirectly as we once again ignore the intrusive news-gathering practices of uh, newspapers as if uh, this was perfectly acceptable, which it isn't.
0: Well, I agree with you there. Wainwright continues to cause havoc in the background. Um, just a, an analytical plug there, listener, on this particular case, um, because uh, this is a case that, as Paul rightly says, the claimant in which was a, a child. Um, and uh, it features in uh, a book called Rewriting Children's Judgments, uh, Rewriting Children's Rights Judgments. Um, Edited by Helen Stelford, Catherine Hollingsworth and Stephen Gilmore, uh, which is uh, a a heart publishing book. Um, And in it, the uh, case is given a replacement judgment written by an academic that explores some of the uh, children's rights issues and the way that they were dealt with and ways in which they could perhaps have been dealt with differently, even better. the rewritten judgment is written by uh Kirsty Hughes and it has a commentary that goes with it, written by yours truly. Um, so uh, if you fancy some more analysis on the AAA A case, then uh, that's the book book to get a hold of. It is uh, not a cheap book because it's uh, an academic book, it's about 75 pounds at the moment. Uh, I believe Hart have it on offer actually with 10% off, which brings it down to about £75, but if you're at a university, chances are the library has a copy, and if it doesn't, um, get them to buy one, uh, because it's a a really good book, not anything else. Okay, my turn. Uh, My underrated case uh, is uh, the case of K and News Group Newspapers, which was once upon a time known as ETK, Uh, and then, for whatever reason, those who report legal judgments got bored of some of these initials and just reduced it to K. Anyway, K in newsgroup newspapers is the case. The Court of Appeal decision from about 2011. Um, The facts are these. There was a man, uh, a prominent figure in the entertainment industry, who had had an affair with a work colleague uh, outside of his marriage? Um, this man had uh, children uh, within his marriage. Um, the work colleague with whom he'd had an affair, identified only as X in the case, was subsequently dismissed from her job. Now, um, News group newspapers got a hold of uh, the story and wished to publish it. And the angle they took on it was that uh, they, they wanted to publish the story of X's sacking to show that she had been unjustly sacked from her job because she'd had an affair with a male colleague uh, and that this had, in their view, some public interest. Um, so by this point in the history of privacy law, the press are getting a bit more canny about how they phrase the public interest arguments. Uh, the inter- public interest argument was somewhat undermined by the fact that X did not want the story to be published. So uh, the man at the centre of this, the claimant, he didn't want the story published. His wife did not want the story published. Uh, and the woman he'd had the affair with did not want the story published. Um, The claimant and his wife uh, had uh, spoken and agreed to try to repair their marriage, uh, and the affair had ended. Now, the defendant newspaper wants to publish the story. Claimant goes to the High Court in the middle of the night, having found out about the proposed story quite late, and seeks an emergency injunction. The duty judge issues an extempore judgment in the middle of the night. Uh, It is appealed and at nine o'clock the following morning, it is heard in the court of appeal. So very quickly, this finds itself in the court of appeal and in the hands uh, of Lord Justice Ward, who delivers the judgment of the court. Now. What gets interesting about this case? Its fact pattern is pretty standard for kiss and tell stories, except of course that the uh, woman that the claimant had the affair with did not want to tell the story. But it's the same kind of man has an affair, gets found out, newspaper gets hold of the story, wants to publish it, expose style. Um, This gets interesting when uh, the Court of Appeal, Lord Justice Ward, turns his attention to the claimant's children and the children's interests become a reason to grant the injunction and prevent publication of the article. Why does this happen? Well, not just is Ward is clearly concerned for the welfare of the children. And he says some quite extraordinarily emotive things. He says we have to think about the children when they're at school for. And I quote, the playground is a cruel place where bullies feed on the embarrassment and discomfort of others. Wow. I've never heard a high court judge talking about bullying Um, and certainly not in a case that has nothing to do with schools or bullying. But he's clearly concerned here. Uh, And we get several remarks to this effect, the importance of the children's interests in not being um, subject to bullying or ridicule by other children if the story gets published. And whilst Lord Justice Ward says that children's interests do not automatically trump the uh, defendant's interest in publication or the public's right to know, He says they must weigh highly in the balancing exercise. He calls them significant weight. and Ultimately, um, the injunction that the claimant seeks is granted. It's significant because Lord Justice Ward introduces an element that we had not seen before into uh, English privacy law. And that is the best interests of the child as a consideration. Now, the best interests of the child test is a test from the Children Act. It's a matter of family law. It gets brought up in care proceedings where children are the subject either of applications to take them into care or maybe it gets brought up in the family proceedings where there are custody disputes between divorcing parents. We don't see it. In court cases where the children are third parties, not represented, not giving evidence, until the K case, when suddenly we do. And um, to cut what could be a long story, and I could talk on this for an hour, but I won't, to cut that long story short, um, the K case gives us the doctrine that I've termed the doctrine of third party interest where, in principle, the interests of people other than the claimant and the defendant are considered relevant to the determination of what is what had previously been thought to be a bilateral private law dispute between claimant and defendant.
1: Mm.
0: And this is unusual, to say the least, in English tort law. It is one thing in tort law to take into account broad policy considerations. That happens all the time. Um, But in taking into account broad policy considerations, the court considers the interests of society at large. What it doesn't do is consider the interests of particular individuals who are not parties to the dispute. And the only place where I've seen this happen frequently is in misuse of private information cases around the time of K and just after the time of K. And it carries on. And we see it happening in PJS in the supreme court which endorses it now there are a whole bunch of problems i've written on these before um and uh you know if anyone wants to know where you can root through my university webpage, i'm sure and find the links to the publications. um but uh, the third party interest doctrine creates a whole load of conceptual problems which in PJS, the Supreme Court could have resolved um, by explaining what the actual basis of, as a matter of formal law of the third party interest doctrine is, but it didn't. It simply endorsed it without explanation. Uh, And so we have this situation where something odd has happened in private law. Bilateral disputes are no longer purely bilateral. If they are privacy disputes uh, and there are other Interested parties, particularly children. Now their interests can be taken into account and they don't necessarily have to give evidence. They don't necessarily have to be represented. In fact, counsel in K has told me that he did not mention the interests of the claimant's children in his submissions before the court because he knew that they had never been considered relevant before. But Lord Justice Ward, who interestingly enough had a career before his appointment to the Court of Appeal on the family. Uh, the bench of the family division of the high court dealing with best interests of the child cases presumably every day for much of the preceding decade or two um he thinks of the claimants uh, children's interests all by himself um and then they feature prominently in the judgment and set a precedent that they are relevant so i think this goes underappreciated because nobody out there is talking about third party interest doctrine apart from me and nobody apart from me has been talking about it for the last decade which is how long we've had it. Um, And every two or three years, um, I uh, have another go at trying to bring this to people's attention um, and saying, we really should talk about this. We really should talk about where this comes from and whether it's justifiable and what the basis for it is. Uh, And nobody pays any attention, maybe because it's too niche, Um, but it's important. Uh, I think it really is important. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's why it goes
1: underappreciated. Very good. Um, Okay, our final category, though. Yes, and let's be reasonably swift with this one
0: because we are already uh, we already have a long podcast on this, so let's uh, pretty quickly deal with these. But the final category uh, is our favorite cases. We are
1: scholars and teachers of the law.
0: We encounter so many cases, but which ones do we actually like the most, Paul?
1: Okay, my favorite uh, case is uh, AMC. Uh, and uh, Group uh, Newspapers Limited. Uh, This was a case decided uh, in 2015 um, before Mrs Justice Lang. Uh, Now, I I love this case for several reasons, one of which is the uh, brevity. Uh, The decision itself is a mere six pages long. Six pages! I admire this kind of brevity. So... The other reason why uh, I happen to like this one is the sassiness of uh, Mrs. Justice Lang. Uh, she pulls no punches uh, at all. The facts of the case are essentially a rerun of A&B PLC. This is, this is a man uh, who is uh, recently married, who's said to have had an affair with uh, someone simply described as X. Uh, We're told that this man is a prominent sports person. We're not told whether they are a footballer or not. Um, But the fact they've had an affair presumably means they are a footballer. But nevertheless. Um, uh, And so what I I admire is the way that uh, Mrs. Justice Lang just kicks this one out of the park in the simplest terms possible. The the whole judgment needs to be read very carefully. But my favourite statement uh, in it uh, is where she talks about role models and the idea of this man being a role model to small children. The the kind of argument that we saw um, playing out well in A&B. She says, and I quote, this is at paragraph 20. uh, He is a role model. Uh, He's a role model for sportsmen and aspiring sportsmen. Any con, any scrutiny of his conduct away from sport ought to bear a reasonable relationship with the fact that he is a sportsman. His position does not, in turn, uh, does not turn him into an example in every sphere of his existence. He is not a role model for cooks or for moral philosophers. The fact that he is a sp- prominent sportsman does not mean that he impliedly pontificates publicly about private morality. In my judgment, a discreetly conducted affair before he was uh, married some years ago is not obviously inconsistent with his public role, even if its conduct involved the breach of team rules. I love that.
0: And I can quite see why. So my favourite case, I struggled a little bit with this, because um, if if, if my favourite case is the one that I talk about the most, write about the most, most enjoy lecturing about, um it's k and news group newspapers, but uh, another case that I very much enjoy is the case of Weller and associated newspapers um This case was a privacy case brought by the children of uh, musician Paul Weller now paul Weller's children uh his daughter, who was sixteen at the time, Dylan Weller, and two infant sons, were photographed by paparazzi. Um, on a family outing in Santa Monica, California, the um, photographs were accessible on web pages in the United Kingdom, hence the um, jurisdiction here to hear the claim. And so far, so straightforward. It's a case along the lines of ones we've seen before where children have been photographed um, uh, and the photographs published. Cases like um, uh, the Murray case involving J.K. Rowland's infant son cases like AAA that Paul's already talked about um, where this case gets interesting for me is in the methodology that uh, the high court judge Mr. Justice Dingermans, adopts because uh, regular listeners of the show will appreciate I like cases with odd methodologies um, and things we can get stuck into analytically to pull them apart see what's going on. And there's a very odd methodology here. The case is handed down not that long after the uh, Strasbourg Court gave its ruling in von Hanover and Germany, number two. And in that case, the Strasbourg Court, which is the European Court of Human Rights, addressed the issue of balancing privacy interests against free speech interests, Article 8 against Article 10 and gave a checklist of factors for the courts to consider when conducting this balancing exercise. Now, prior to uh, Von Hanover number 2, we had in the United Kingdom a set of guidelines from the House of Lords on how to balance the Article Eight Ten uh, arguments uh, from the case of Ray S, Lord Stein, laid down what he called the ultimate balancing test Um, interesting question then for the court faced with the two of these which does it follow does the high court follow the earlier judgment from the highest domestic court or does it follow the guidance that comes later from uh, the european court of human rights which is more authoritative in its treatment of convention rights but which is technically not binding on English courts because it's not part of the English judicial pyramid. Answer, and my favourite answer, I think, in the entirety of law is, of course, we do both. Uh, Mr Justice Digimans takes the Ray S balancing guidance and he does that, and then he goes and gets the uh, Von Hanover number no. 2 guidance, and he does that as well. And for good measure, we get uh, a, a huge amount of balancing. And it does somewhat cast doubt on Lord Stein's claims to have com- to have come up with the ultimate balancing test, because I think really what's happened here is that uh, Mr. Justice Dingemans has come up with the ultimate balancing test, which is taking two balancing tests and sticking them together to make one mega balancing test, which, of course, for the reasons that Paul elaborates in his work, doesn't actually result in any real balancing, but then it never does in English law, because uh, for all the talk of balancing, we don't do it, which makes the whole thing even more hilariously pointless. Um, But, yes, I like this because of the uh, mishmash of methodologies. um, uh, And I actually think that Mr. Justice Dingerman's decision to uh, mix mix up the two methodologies is a perfectly defensible answer to the formal question of which is the more authoritative. Um, uh, So I, I think it makes sense. And the two are not incompatible. The tests are perfectly compatible. It's just fun see them both getting such express and detailed treatment one after yeah. the other in this particular case and there we have it less sometimes less is more uh, but sometimes more is more and yes I, I think there was definitely a case in which more was more that is all we have time for uh we yeah. hope you have found this informative and uh, interesting
1: yeah, I think we could we could uh, summarize uh, this podcast really as a plea uh, in the way that uh, Alan Partridge encouraged Lim to stop getting Bond wrong. This is really us saying stop getting privacy wrong. <laughs> stop getting privacy wrong. There's a
0: message uh, brought to you by Professor Paul Ragg. So uh, thank you for that one, uh, Paul. Uh, Thank you, listener. Uh, If you have questions along these lines, we're grateful to uh, uh, our our listener who uh, sent us that one on Twitter. We will try to answer other questions. If you have them, you can always tweet us the hashtag at MediaLawPodcast. And uh, as long as they are good questions, interesting questions, uh, we will give you consideration to answering them in our podcast. Um, uh, We will be back with a podcast in the coming weeks on uh, cases in defamation. Um, until then we wish you all the best